The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? How y'all doing this morning? Let's get after it so we can go watch football, right? Um, Luke chapter 6, if you would, please. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 today. We're going to finish that out. Um, But if you would also... Um, today you can use your ribbons. You know your ribbons? You guys have these in your Bibles? So you can use one of these. So Luke chapter 6, but then put a ribbon in John 3. It's like an eighth of an inch to the right. That's where you'll find it. A um, couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, there's a women's retreat coming up that's called Unexpected, which I think is funny. Because now that we're announcing, it's not exactly unexpected, is it? It's kind of to be expected, Women's Street, as a matter of fact. But um, that's coming up at Lake Bradley Christian Camp, Friday, February 23rd. Spaces limited reservations start next week. Is that right, Kathy? Next week. And this is with the NAS, correct? With uh, Medford Nazarene Church. So we're going to be doing that uh, with them. So make sure you get involved in that. And then men, we got something for you too. Men's fireside and chili feed. That is so stereotypical. (laughs) Men, chili feed. Ladies retreat. Men, chili feed. That's so bad. But it is. Um, So men's fireside and chili feed is on January 30th. Uh, There's some uh, men's prayer events going on as well. So make sure you check that out on your... um, the thing they gave you when you came in. What do we call that? Bulletin. Check that out if you would, please. And uh, that's enough of that for today. So let's look at Luke chapter six. I'm going to warn you guys, I don't like this teaching today. And it's not, it's not that, it's not that it's like not true, but when you're a teacher and you're teaching about teachers, it feels weird. So you guys are going to have to give me some extra grace today for sure. Um, Nobody needs it more in this room than I do. Amen couple of you are a little enthusiastic on that. Like, you're like, amen, <laughs> amen. All right, well, you chose to come here. All right, so uh, <laughs> Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be. In honor of God's word, will you guys just stand with me as we read it? We're going to be in verse 43 through 49. Luke chapter 6, 43 through 49. The word of God says this. For no good tree bears bad fruit, Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. But the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. So Father, we just bow before you right now and ask that you would just speak to us, that your spirit would move in this place. Um... Lord, I I pray for myself, no one needs more grace in this teaching than I do. So I just pray, Lord, that you would show me mercy and show your church mercy through me. That you would awaken our souls. That you would awaken affections for you, understanding and truth. And I pray, God, that you would not uh, grow Pharisees and hypocrites out of this, but people that are more like you out of this text. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O my rock, my king, 
my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. So we're finishing Sermon on the Mount today. Um, Like I said last week, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I'm stepping on landmines every time we open up the Sermon on the Mount. It is not an easy teaching. Amen? It's not. Um, There's some challenges in here, man. I don't care how far you are in your walk with God. I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't think there's anyone in this room that can say, oh man, I've been nailing it on all these. Can we get to something new? Like, I don't think that exists. Um, it's a, it's a really tough, this is the most famous teaching that Jesus ever gave. And when you really break it down and study it, it's his hardest. Um, and in this, this is what's referred to as a kingdom teaching. So as Jesus is teaching about these things, he's talking about what the kingdom of God looks like compared to really what the rest of the kingdoms of the world have always looked like. He's, he's drawn some comparisons and he's, he's calling his followers. He's calling his listeners to live according to a different economy. And last week, we had a really tricky one. We talked about this text, verse 37 says, judge not and you will not be judged. That's, that's a challenging one for us because we want to judge. Like we have this nature in us that, that we, it's like we fuel something in ourselves by pointing fingers at other people. And, and that's just kind of a human nature thing. It always has been. But, um, but I really want to talk in, about this a little bit before we dive back into it. And first of all, I want to clarify something. So last week, one of the examples that I used is I talked with you guys about a, um, a staff policy that, that a friend of mine who works at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, um, that this, this new staff policy that she was really struggling with. And, and I talked with two different people after that teaching that were kind of struggling with some of the implications of that because they felt like what I was saying was um, kind of feeding into that same old old school fundamentalist attitude that just says, well, if that's what they believe, then I'm not spending my money there anymore. And I'm not going to have anything to do with that place. And that I had basically taken um, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and given you guys an example of something that you should judge. And I just want to clarify, and it really ties in for the sake of where we're going to be going today. I want to clarify with you, that is not, nothing could be further from the truth. That was not what I was saying. Um, I, we, I'm going to go to a Shakespeare play. I'll just let you guys know straight up. Like they're good plays, right? Amen. There's, there's some great stuff that happens over there, but here's the difference. The, the whole thrust of that text is not to be the kind of people that just sit back. And when we see something we don't agree with, or we see some behavior that doesn't meet our Christian morals, then we just act indignantly and point fingers. That's, that's what the fundamentalist church did in the 1900s that led to all sorts of bad things regarding even our, our nation's culture. Like, that's not the idea. Christians are not called to be insulary fundamentalists that just step back away from anything that we don't agree with. We are missional gospelers that have a good news. We are called to engage the lost. We're called to love the lost, engage people in places, whether we agree with them or not, to bring light into those places. Amen? So in no way am I saying, you guys need to go around and judge. And if we don't agree with somebody else, then we need to just withdraw from them. I'll just, I'm not going to spend my money over there. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. Like we should, we should try to engage to the best of our ability to bring the gospel to bear. And at the very least, we are absolutely called to love everybody. Amen. Because if you remember the teaching right before that was what? Love even your enemies. And you got to understand The people Jesus is talking to at this particular point in the teachings are the religious people that were doing just the opposite of that. They were the fundamentalists. 
They were the ones that would withdraw from everyone else and wouldn't have any contact with anybody that they didn't feel was quite spiritual enough because, ooh, I might get some of their sin on me or something like that. They were the kind of people that would withdraw. They would look down their nose and point their finger at everyone else who was not as good as them. And so this is what we have to understand, because take a look right here, verse 43, and we're going to do the first part here. Verse 43 through 45 says, Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, that paragraph starts with the word for. And if you know English, you know, that's a conjunction. That's tying everything that he's about to say right here to what he had just said. So what is it that he just said that we looked at last week? Well, he's, he's talking to the people of Israel about the prime teachers, the religious leaders in Israel. And here, for those that might be newer or something, I want to really make a distinction that's really important here. Um, Because you'll hear us say things like, we are all about faith. We love Jesus. We hate religion. And you struggle with that because you're like, but you're a church. How do you hate religion in your church? Well, that's because religion now is sort of a big umbrella word that just covers basically any sort of faith-based institution. So people even say, what religion are you? I'm Baptist. I'm Christian. I'm Jewish. I'm whatever the case may be. But religion really at its core, and what we're talking about when we make that distinction, uh, religion is a process by which I'm going to earn God's favor by doing these things. So if I do this and this and this and this, and then I don't do this and this and this and this and this, God likes me. But here's the problem with that. If that's the way that we approach our faith, it, it, whether you mean to or not, it creates sort of a hierarchical structure. Because you go, well, I've done this much, so I'm up about right here. And they've done only this much, so, ah, poor things. Baby Christians, they'll get there one day. And then you build this sort of hierarchical thing that feeds pride. And this is what was going on in the religious institutions of the day. So the scribes and the Pharisees are the guys that Jesus is speaking about when he's teaching these guys right here. He's talking about the religious leaders of the day. And remember, these were the people in that culture that if you had lived there and you said to anyone in Israel, hey, who are like the most holy, devout people that you could find anywhere? If you had to choose God's favorites and point them out to me, who's it going to be? And everyone would point at these religious leaders. Everyone would. They'd say, oh man, those are the guys that know the scriptures the best. Those are the guys that have memorized the most Bible verses. Those are the guys that spend the most time in prayer. Those are the guys that tithe. Those are the guys that do all of these different things. But then Jesus, God himself, comes onto the scene. And what does he say? He says, these guys, they're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they're all polished. Like they look legit on the outside. They look clean and pristine. You could eat off of them, you would think. But then on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. What is he talking about when he says that? He says, look, they're doing all kinds of things on the outside. And they're basing their pride and their religious worth and really their whole, the way they look at the rest of the world based on what they do. But the problem is... That though they're doing all of these actions, their hearts on the inside are far from me. And some of the examples Jesus gives, he says, you guys lay burdens on people with your teaching. You're always telling people you're not good enough. You need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. But then you yourselves, you won't even lift a finger to help these guys. 
So you're just constantly putting burdens on people and you're showing no mercy whatsoever. That's totally far from my heart, God would say, because God, remember we looked at it last week. The first thing that God points out when he reveals himself to us is he says, I am a God, what? Merciful. Not throwing burdens on people and calling people out, but here we have the religious people, the religious leaders of that day. The top of the top. And what are they guilty of? They're constantly looking down their nose at everyone else. They're absolutely filled with religious pride. Yeah, we'll be first in line in heaven. We, we have like a quick pass to get on every ride because of how spiritual we are. Like that's kind of their approach to all this kind of stuff. And Jesus is like, uh-uh. So much so that in our text that we looked at last week, what does he say? He says, hey, if a blind person is led by another blind person, won't they both end up in the ditch? And what he means by that is this, hey, don't follow those guys. They think they've got it so figured out and they're completely blind to their shortcomings. They're completely blind to the fact that their heart is so far from God. And you guys are following them straight into the ditch. So what's the implication then? What is he saying? Don't be blind. Open your eyes. Understand the difference between the actual heart and intent of God and what these guys are peddling and throwing on you because that is not of me. This is what he calls us to do. And so this idea of judge and judge not is not, it's a judgment that leads to condemnation. We are not called to be people that look down on everything else and point fingers at everything else and are just constantly condemning everyone else. As we're going to see here in just a few minutes, Jesus himself says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. And that's the mission the church has been given, not to go point fingers at every institution, every neighborhood, every people group that we disagree with, but to save them. To show mercy, to like love those people, right, church? I should totally be getting, I should totally be getting amens out of all this kind of stuff, right? Are they just all, they're watching football, aren't they? It's the games don't start till noon. Come on, amen? All right, so this is what we're supposed to be. Now, I gotta tell you guys that as I'm teaching about this, this is ugh, for me. Because I'm going to be talking a little bit about teachers and false teachers and teachers you should listen to and teachers you shouldn't listen to, which is awkward because I'm sort of a teacher, right? And I'll just be honest with you, like I wrestle with that because, well, Tim Keller said this. He, he, Tim Keller actually tweeted this this week, which completely ruined me for this sermon. He said, the fastest way to become a Pharisee is to hate Pharisees. Now think about that. The fastest way to become a Pharisee is to hate Pharisees. What does that mean? Well, we can look at the people in here that Jesus is saying not to follow, and we can become the exact thing they are by now we're pointing fingers at them and going, see, we've got it all figured out. Those guys are idiots. Good thing we've learned things. I told you guys last week, right? Lucky for you, you come to Heritage, because Christianity has been wrestling with truths for 2,000 years, but we in a gymnasium in Medford, Oregon, we figured everything out, so you guys are blessed, man. Right? Like, I, no, we want to be humble about these things as we approach them. So I'm asking for a huge measure of grace because this is not a teaching that I'm excited to give because I feel awkward about it. And I think maybe that's probably a good thing. But that's what we're looking at here. Now, the reason we can say for sure that when Jesus goes into this and says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, we know for a fact that he's talking about these teachers that he actually refers to as false teachers in Israel. The reason I know this is because in Matthew's gospel, there's another, like a parallel account of this same sermon. And look at the words that he uses to tell the story. Can you put Matthew 6 up? Better yet, put Matthew 7 up. Verse 15 says this. See? Humility. Um, 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, I don't know if you noticed something, but check this out. In one paragraph, now for us it's a week, but remember, Jesus is giving this teaching all at once. So literally within seconds of each other, Jesus says, don't judge. And then he says this, which is kind of like, and yeah, you guys should probably do some judging. He actually is. When he says, don't judge, he's not calling us to have no background and suspend any sort of logical thought and just kind of go, well, whatever they want to believe is fine. That's not what he's doing, but he's really specific about the direction that that judging should go. He's saying with regards to teachers and the people we follow, you need to judge them and you need to look at their fruit. Let me tell you guys, I have gotten so many emails over the years. I will definitely get one this week. There's no doubt about it. I've gotten so many emails when I've called out different people or I've mentioned different books or di things like that by different people. And I'll have people say to me all the time, Jeff, you can't do that. That's brothers in Christ. And it is not your job to point a finger at someone else. And I'm like, no, the Bible makes it really clear. It's absolutely our job to judge, especially teachers. That's why the scriptures even say, let not many of you be teachers because unto you is greater condemnation. You're supposed to pay attention to who you listen to. And not everybody that holds a Bible in their hand is somebody you should listen to. Let me give you an example. Look at Acts chapter 20. This is Paul he planted the church in Ephesus, one of the most famous churches in the history of the world. And as he's about to leave to go on to the next place, he calls all the elders of that church together, the shepherds, the pastors. And this is what he says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now think about this. Look what he says. He says, hey, please pay careful attention to yourselves. Be on guard. Men, protect this church. The people in this church, Jesus bought them with his own blood. This church is precious to him. And the way he tells them to protect, the first thing he jumps to, the primary thing he jumps to is he says, listen, People are going to rise up from within. So many people and so many fundamentalist movements and things like that in Christianity have spent so much time pointing their fingers at things outside the church. Seems like Paul's way more concerned way more often with things that go on inside the church. And he says, hey, listen, there's people that are going to come up from within you. He calls them wolves. They're not here to feed the sheep. That's us, the people in the church. They're not here to feed the sheep. They're here to take from the sheep. They're here to feed themselves. And he warns us really, really carefully about the danger within. And the, one, the danger he's talking about is those that are going to come and abuse and lead the flock astray. And this happens over and over and over in the New Testament. He's constantly telling elders, constantly telling pastors, hey, watch out. People from inside your midst are going to rise up and they're going to be trying to take advantage of the people in the church, not care for the people in the church. And you need to judge the difference between them. You as pastors need to be able to discern the difference between a sheep and a wolf. You feed sheep, you shoot wolves, right? And this is what he calls the church to do. 
So when people within the church say to other people, when you're calling out an error in the church, they go, no, you can't do that. You're brothers. Paul says you absolutely do that, but you do it humbly. Did you notice even as he said at the beginning of that verse, Acts 20, 28, he says, and pay careful attention to yourselves. But we are absolutely called to judge. But it's not a judging with condemnation people outside the walls. He's saying, hey, you need to discern fruit within the church. And take a look at this. Look at uh, 1 John 4. Look what 1 John 4 says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So pause on that. Think about that. He says, listen, you need to test every spirit. Spirit, don't go Scooby-Doo on me. It doesn't mean, ooh, spirit. It means like, hey, the spirit that is empowering or the spirit of the person speaking, when people are teaching to you, you need to discern that. You need to know, is this something I should listen to at all? Or should I just bail on this? Like, what is this? And he's saying, look, everything that comes your way, you probably shouldn't just automatically listen to. You need to check into it. You need to think about it. And then he gives you a disclaimer. He gives us kind of a litmus test. He says, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So he gives you a great way of looking at it. When someone comes and they're talking and they're teaching and they're speaking to you, what are they pointing to? Are they leading people to Jesus or are they leading people to themselves? Are they making disciples of Jesus or are they making disciples of themselves? Really important thing to understand about anything that you're, anyone that you're actually listening to. And then he goes on, look at verse 5 in the same text. He says, they, speaking of false prophets, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. So get this. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching about the kingdom of God and, and this totally different economy than the kingdom of the world. And he's saying, look, those who aren't of me, those who are actually wolves, they're going to be teaching about the, the economy I'm trying to call you out of. They're going to be teaching about something different. You need to be able to discern and learn the difference. So are we supposed to judge other teachers? Are we supposed to judge the fruits and the teachings that we hear? Absolutely we are. So what does that mean though? judge them by your fruit. So like if you hear some teaching, how are you supposed to actually do that? I'm going to give you three things that you should consider. And the first one is this. When someone, a teacher, an author, a speaker, the number one thing that you jump to, the first thing that I would say you should go to even scripturally is you judge them by the content of the character that they display. So let me give you, let me show you what I'm talking about. John 15. Can we put this up? I know I'm going out of order from morning service, but that's okay. This will be better. Um, John, don't tell the early service people. We need them. There's not enough empty seats in here. Okay, so um, John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this is Jesus teaching and he's saying, look, the fruit that gets produced on the other end is determined by what that branch is actually tied into. And he says, you, speaking to his disciples and his followers at that time, he's saying, you abide in me. If you're tied into me, if you're rooted into me, then the fruit that you're producing is going to be determined by me. So what does that fruit look like? Paul gives it to us in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. We don't judge whether a teacher is someone we should listen to or follow based on the eloquence of their speaking, the number of their book sales, the number of people that listen to their podcast, how big their church is, or what blessings they can actually give to us in a practical level in our life. We start by looking at their fruit and going, is this person even connected with Jesus to begin with? And that doesn't mean that every teacher we follow has to be perfect. There's no such thing. But are they modeling repentance as they're trying to grow and follow Jesus? And are their actions showing the character of God? I mean, if you were here last week, remember we talked about that. When God revealed himself to Moses and displayed his character, what were the first things he's jumping to? I am the Lord, the Lord, merciful, forgiving, gracious, loving. The Pharisees and religious leaders of that day, they were nothing like that. They were jerks. They were cold-hearted. Jesus called them snakes. And by the way, if you know Jewish culture and you know your Bible, is there any animal that could be worse to be called as a Jewish religious guy than a snake? You remember a story way back in, say, Genesis 3 that kind of ruined everything? What was that animal? Snake. And this is what he called him. He's like, you're not here to bless anybody. You're not here to bring grace. You're not here to bring mercy. You're not here to do any of that kind of stuff. You're a snake. And so this is what we're actually called to be able to discern between. And now listen, Jesus in that day, he said of them, he said of those false teachers, here's what you have to be, and here's where you have to be careful. The thing they were teaching, the words might be right, but even Jesus said, you're laying burdens on people, but then you yourself won't lift a finger to help them. They weren't known for grace at all. They weren't known by their kindness. They weren't known as being loving. They were cold, rigid, judgmental jerks. Do you know how many Christians to this day are referred to and known as being cold, rigid, judgmental jerks? Not us anymore, right? Like that doesn't bring glory to God. That doesn't reflect Jesus at all. All you're doing when you become that guy, you're not pointing anybody to Jesus. You're pointing people to yourself. And you're going, look how amazing I am and you're not as good as me. But think about Jesus. He's the giver of the law. So even all the things that these guys were teaching, it's from God's word. But Jesus, he's saying, you guys won't even lift a finger to help. But what did Jesus do? He gave it all. He, he left the throne in heaven to become a man and to live on our behalf, to serve us because he is merciful and loving. He is not afraid to get his hands dirty to come in and meet the needs of the people that he's leading. He's, his love is not just words. His love is action as he's willing to go down and get dirty and be part of the world. I should be careful when I say get dirty about Jesus. That sounds bad, right? But, but to get involved and to get down there into the muck and serve and love and help his people. Amen? This was not them at all. But now here's the problem. Um, you can't exactly, in our day and age, we have like podcasts and TV and all that kind of stuff. So you can see the teachings. It becomes kind of challenging to see the day-to-day life of, and character of everybody that you listen to. Um, I would encourage you, please don't go, well, I'd love to read this book, but I don't know if his character's any good. So I'll follow him around for two weeks and see what I see. That's called stalking. Don't do that. But there's other things that we can consider. There's other things that we can look at. And the second one I would say is just straight up the content of what they're teaching. And man, this one's, this is such a big deal. Because Christians try so hard. I think we used this quote some time ago that 
most Christians, like, we would rather be a hypocrite than be perceived as one. And so what that means is, I would rather be a hypocrite and just keep things quiet and pretend and fake it like everything's amazing than actually speak up or display some area of weakness and have someone think that I might be. And that actually trickles into a lot of this. So here's the deal. When it comes to like Christian writers, Christian authors, Christian speakers, Christians are way too lenient. Way too lenient. I, I was looking, even I went on Amazon, the, the top 100 Christian bestsellers of 2017. And I went through the top 100 and I was like, out of these 100 books, if Heritage opened a bookstore out here, how many of those would I be okay with being on the bookshelf? 15, only 15 of the top 100 Christian books. That's insane. Because here's the thing, they're not being bought by unbelievers. You know that, right? They're being bought by Christians, many of whom have no discernment whatsoever with regards to what they're actually reading. And you go, well, but he said some pretty good things. And some of his stuff was all right. Well, I mean, that's like when I was a youth pastor, I remember talking to like high school girls that'd be like, oh, my boyfriend's awesome. He's, he's just a good guy. It's like, yeah, isn't he in juvie right now? Yeah, but he's a good, he's a good guy. And he's flunking out of school too, right? Yeah. And didn't he cheat on you like a week ago? Yeah, but he's a good guy. I'm like, are you sure? Because you're seeing that tree's producing like apples and I, all I see are hand grenades, man. Are you sure? And so I'll, let me give you an example. I'm going to put up some, some three different quotes by three major Christian authors. And first, we're just going to read them without commentary and just see if you guys can discern maybe what's Christian or what's kind of Christian-y, but not necessarily true. Because this is the deal. If the teaching isn't lining up with the words of Christ... If anyone's declaring any other gospel, the, Paul actually says, if you're declaring any other gospel, be cursed. Like, that's a big deal. So let's just take a look at these. These are three major Christian authors. Here's the first one. Sometimes God will allow the fire just so other people will see he is God. He will use you as an example. They may not believe it before, but when they see God show out in your life, when they see you beat the cancer, break the addiction set a new standard, go where you never dreamed, they won't be able to deny the blessing of God on your life. If you'll keep that right attitude, God will use that difficulty to take you to a new level. That's quote number one. All right, now let's look at quote number two. By the way, in a minute, I'm gonna ask for a vote. If anyone votes for quote number two, we are gonna have a meeting this week. I just want you guys to know. All right, number two is this. When we obey God, we're not doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. <laughs> Stephanie's a teacher. She can do that, right? Good job. Good job. And here's the third one. Here's the third one. You guys pay attention because we're going to do a vote and I'm grading you. Some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life, as in the case of Jonah imperiled by the storm. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as in the case of Joseph sold into slavery. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to the love of God more ardently for himself alone and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. 
All right. Who thinks the biblical author there, the book that Heritage would proudly sell in their bookstore, is quote number one? Who thinks quote number two? (laughs) Who thinks quote number three? And who's scared to death to raise their hand to any of those right there? (laughs) All right, well, let's look at them. Let's look at them. Quote number one. He says, sometimes God will, he or she, I should say, um, says sometimes God will allow the fire just so other people see that he is God. Well, that's probably true. Um, He will use you as an example. That can happen. They may not believe it before, but when they see God show out in life, when they see you beat the cancer, break the addiction, set a new standard, go where you've never dreamed, they won't be able to deny the blessing of God on your life. Well, there might be a problem there because what if you don't beat cancer? What happens then? What if you don't break addiction? What if you wrestle with that for the rest of your life? Are you not saved? Did God fail? Did you fail God? Because I've sat beside some of the most godly people in the world and watched them shrivel and wrinkle and pass away because of cancer, worshiping Jesus the entire way. If you keep that right attitude, God will use that difficulty to take you to a new, new level. I'm Try not to be a Pharisee, but I don't even know what that means. All right, next, next quote. Next quote is just no, right? I mean, just, does anyone, like you, you've, you could know nothing about God whatsoever and come in and go, well, that just seems weird. So um, that's not it. Just move right on, right? Third quote. Now, here's the difference. I want you to think about this. What's being pointed at in these? Oh, man, you're going to beat that addiction. You're going to beat that poverty. You're going to beat, but look at this one. Some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life, as in the case of Jonah, imperiled by the storm. If you know that story, you know that's true. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as in the case of Joseph, sold into slavery. I mean, we do that with our kids, right? You discipline your kid, whether you're spanking or grounding, whatever your thing is, but you're trying to train them to prevent them from going into areas that you know is going to be harmful for them, right? Right? And then some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. Do you see the direction that's going here? By the way, that's Tim Keller. I'll tell you who that is. I'm not telling you who the other guys are. And honestly, I'm not doing that more because it would just feed my flesh anyway. Like, I, honestly, like I, I had to wrestle through even this teaching because it's so easy. Pastors are the worst at this. We're the worst. Because we're supposed to teach truth with like conviction. And so it can so easily lead into this kind of pharisaical attitude that just goes, I know better than you. I know better than him. I know better than them. And I even had to wrestle hard with God over this yesterday where I was just like, I'm just feeding my own flesh. Am I pointing people out that I just don't like? So I'm not naming names. If you have a teacher you want to know about, you can email us on your own. Not giving you names on that. Sorry. Except that's Tim Keller. You can totally read Tim Keller. Amen, church? Totally read Tim Keller. But here's the sad thing, though. All three of those books are on the bookshelf of every Christian bookstore probably in the nation. And it's not unbelievers that are buying them. It's Christians. It's Christians that don't understand the truth. They're not judging the content of the book. Anything that even scratches a little bit of an itch. One of those authors, so keep in mind, in John, what did it say? That the one thing that you can tell a difference is the one who proclaims the name of Jesus, right? 
One of those authors is like a Twitter phenom. I don't know how anyone has that much time to be on Twitter as much as that particular person is. Um, except that I wasted probably even more time yesterday because I decided to use that person's Twitter feed and go back through 2017 and just see, is this person pointing to Jesus at all? There were over 1,200 tweets that came from one of those authors in 2017. Zero references to Jesus. None. How do you even do that? So we, church, you got to be smarter than that. And heritage in particular. As your pastor who believes these words, like when Paul says, hey, watch out shepherd your flock. Man, I'm telling you, please, you got to be sharper than that. Man, you got to know the word of God so that when somebody comes with some fluffy garbage gospel that is not going to lead you to Christ, but leads you into a ditch, you got to know the difference. And you say, well, why would that even happen? I'll tell you this. So it, I'm going back to Uganda for the first time in a while in two weeks. And in Uganda, unfortunately, the prosperity gospel that is so prevalent in America has just wrecked Africa. It's so huge and popular in Africa because you have so many people with no hope, no money, no resources looking for anything that'll help them get some hope that they're going to get out of that situation that they're in. And it shouldn't be surprising to us because Paul wrote Timothy and said, hey, in those last days, there's going to be these pastors that are going to come up from within you, and they're only going to be teaching things that tickle people's ears. In other words, there's going to be a group of teachers that come up that are false prophets, and all they say is things that make everybody feel good. And so in Africa, there's this huge spread of prosperity gospel that's there. And I met this one gal, and she was part of a church there that was heavily influenced by the prosperity theology, and she was poor. I mean, like, a Africa is poor. She was really poor and had just struggled financially forever. And she was part of this, this church where they were just like, hey, the, the proof of, God's, of your faith is God's blessing on your life. And they literally, in the church service, pulled her out of the crowd, brought her up onto the stage, and the pastor of the church pointed at her and just totally threw her under the bus in front of the entire congregation and said, the reason she's still poor is because her faith is weak. And just made a mockery of her. And so what happened? She crumbled. She was a mess. And she spent a long time doubting herself, feeling like God doesn't love her, thinking thoughts that couldn't be more opposite to the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. You go, why does the truth actually matter? Why should we point out false doctrines? Because false doctrines wreck people. And God came to save people. So it does matter, but we do it humbly. We do it humbly. Amen, church? And then the last one is this, it, the impact on people, which I kind of just alluded to there. Are, are the people that we listen to making disciples of Jesus, or are they making disciples of themselves? Are they producing people that look like Christ? Are lives genuinely changing, and people are becoming more gracious and more loving and more like Jesus? Because if, if the people we're listening to aren't producing that, then we shouldn't be listening to them. Because even that passage in John said, the false teachers are speaking from the world. So if they're just producing a bunch of people that look just like the consumers that the rest of the world is, then that's not what Christ is calling us to. It's a different economy. And then, this is so, so important. I want you to look at this. There, there, what he's talking about here, there's an implication here that's a much deeper on a personal level for us than just whether, uh, giving us tools, whether we should read a book or not. And I, I want, Heritage, listen, I want you to be, 
I want you to know your scriptures. I want you to be discerning with the books that you read. I don't want you to be hardcore jerks that go, that guy's a false teacher, that guy's a false teacher, and like puffing yourself. I don't want you to be like that, but humbly, I want you to pursue truth and to grow and grow and grow, right? That's what we're called to do. But, but there's an implication here and an understanding that he's pointing to that's really important that we grasp. And this is where the humility part of all of this is actually rooted in. When you really get down to the heart of the issue that Jesus is talking about, it's an issue of the heart. Because what he's saying is, is like that seed that's an apple tree, if that's the core of it, if that's the, the, the foundation of it, if that's the seed you planted in the ground, then that's going to determine the fruit that ends up on the end of the branch. You're not going to plant an apple tree seed and then somehow along the way change and pineapples pop out. And, and he even says, what's the, what's the actual verse he says here in Luke? Uh, the evil person, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. He's getting to the issue of the heart. And, and this, is, this is why, listen. There was this one night, I told you John 3, eighth of an inch to the right. Turn to John 3 real quick and I want you to see this. Because Jesus is calling out these Pharisees. And he's warning his people, don't follow these teachers. But one night, one of those Pharisees came to see Jesus. And look at what he says. In John chapter 3, we're going to read along. There's so much theology. There's so much to unpack. Try to resist getting caught up in some things if, there's, if it's confusing to you or whatever. And I just want you to see what the overall thrust of what Jesus is saying is, here is. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be marveled that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answers him, are you, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know, and we bear witness of what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, then how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No man has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, speaking of himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's a lot, but let me give you a really, really rough paraphrase on this. Here's this, this Pharisee. 
And his whole life is built on do this, do this, do this, and that's what makes you spiritual. And all these other people are heathens condemned to hell. And this whole hierarchical, judgmental religious system, his whole life is built on that. And Jesus comes and starts teaching. And he's teaching about a different kingdom. He's teaching about a different economy. And this Pharisee, he knows. He knows he can't do it. He knows he can't do it. And so he sneaks over to Jesus at night because he's a Pharisee. He can't be seen talking to this guy. So he comes over at night and he's like, I don't get it. Like, what is all this stuff you're talking about? Like, I, I see something different in you. Nobody could do the things that you do if they're not from God. Like, I get all this, but what do we even do with all this? And what does Jesus tell him? Try harder. No. Claim it. No. Just have stronger faith. If you just have faith, it'll all work out for you. No. He tells him, man, you need to be born again. You're caught up in an economy that's the economy of the world, not the economy of God. And he tells him, no one has ever ascended. No one has ever made this on their own. You will never see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And look, here's the essence of Christianity. This is what people don't get. But Christians are not people that just got better. Christians are not people that somewhere along the line, we figured out what moral living looks like and we just got better at it than everybody else. That's not what makes a Christian. Christians are people that realize we can't do it. And we turn instead to Jesus who did it for us. That's what Christianity is. The gospel tells us right out the gate, that God creates everything in perfection. But as you guys know, Adam and Eve sinned against God. And right there, everything that was intended fractured and was broken. And from that moment on, and people hate this, but from that moment on, no one was born good. Nobody. Parents of toddlers know this. But like we so want to say that people are good. That's why you even see like in the news, a mass murderer kills 50 people. They talk to the neighbor and they go, well, it just seemed like a good guy to me. He killed 50 people. He's not a good guy. But, it, but it's not just that. The heart of the issue is a heart issue. David in the Psalms writes, I was conceived in iniquity. In the very womb, something was broken. And Christians are people that understand that, but also understand the truth that Jesus humbled himself. He did lift a finger to help those. He came himself. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He went to the cross, not just to randomly die for our sins, but literally to pay the price for all of that failure, for all of that wickedness, for all of that darkness. All of that was put on Jesus on our behalf. He rose from the dead on the third day, a historical, verifiable fact, rose from the dead, not just, to, not just to prove who he is, but to defeat sin and death. And now he says, listen, just put your faith in me. And you go, what does that mean? Just believe that he existed? No, it means put your faith in me. It means on that day when I have to stand before God and he says, why should I ever let you into the kingdom of God? I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about him. If I'm talking about me, I'd say you should not let me in. And you know, but man, he's good. Your son came for me and he did everything perfect. And he loved me so much that he gave his life for me in spite of me. And I am here for one reason and one reason only, St. Peter. Open the gates because Jesus is my king. And that's it. 
If we know that, then how can we possibly become the self-righteous Pharisees that are looking down our nose at everybody else? It's not about us. It's about him. And how can we fuel book sales for people that make everything about us? It's all about him. And our job now, like I said, we're not fundamentalists that back away. We're gospelers, people that have good news that says, I know you're jacked up, me too. But there's this guy, Jesus, and he's God. And this is what he did for you because he loves you. You can't tell that story looking down your nose at somebody. It doesn't work. And that's what we're called to do. And here's why it's really important, both for us to understand this inside the room and for those that are outside. Three, three reasons. The first, he even says in the teaching, if you go back to Luke. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And you guys, if you know the story, we don't have the time to go through it, but the other accounts of this story are a lot more detailed. There's all these people that at the end of time are going to come to Jesus and say, hey, we did all these things. We did all this stuff. And what's Jesus' response to them? He says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And that's the difference between religion and relationship. It wasn't people that know Jesus, had a heart for Jesus, and are following Jesus. It was people that are just doing things under the guise of Jesus. And at the end, that won't be enough. And some of the people on that side of the fence are going to be the authors that people read. It's the truth. That's why he says people will rise up from within. It's also why we as teachers better be on our knees before we teach. That's why Timothy says, hey, you better consider yourself and the doctrine. Because in doing that, you'll save yourself and others. God forbid we be the kind of people that teach truth that saves people, but don't receive the same salvation ourselves. Right, church? Oh, God, give us grace in that. But then also, here's the other deal. Jesus goes into this parable about storms and life, right? Because storms are going to come. We can do the kind of teaching all day long about how if you follow Jesus, it's always going to be sunny. But you follow Jesus long enough, you know that's not true, right? And so look what Jesus says in verse 47, and we'll be done. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against that house, he could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Storms come for everybody, but the thing that you build your life on is going to determine whether you make them through it or not. And that's why our, we have to have right doctrine. Because if we just feed people a bunch, of, a bunch of fluff, a bunch of sand to build their lives on, it's not going to happen. We know this to be true. If you go to the bank today and say, I want a loan, I'm going to build a house. They're going to start asking questions. They want inspections. They want engineer certificates. They want to know that the house they're giving you money to build isn't going to crumble. So if you go to them and say, no, don't worry about it. I'm building on the beautiful Oregon coast. It'll be worth a ton of money. Don't need a foundation. I'm just going to stick the wood straight down into the sand. You won't get a loan. You'll get a laugh. You won't get a loan. Because the storms come. Cancer comes. And so when you give someone that kind of theology that just says, oh man, when you beat, when you just name it and claim it, God loves me so much, there's no way I'm going to die to cancer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defeat all these things and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to rise above. God's about to take me to a whole new level and all that kind of stuff. And then cancer takes you 
or takes your loved one or takes your parent or takes your child, your foundation is rocked. Do you know how many people walk away from Jesus because they built their house on the wrong thing? And then they go, I tried Jesus, it just didn't work for me. You didn't try Jesus. You got fed a line of bull by a false teacher that doesn't know the gospel. And so we have to know the gospel. We have to be able to teach people the words of Jesus. And we have to teach them to obey the words of Jesus because sometimes the storms that are coming is because we weren't obeying him. Sometimes the storms that are coming, we brought on ourselves. But lives, lives count on this. And Jesus in this, this is the beauty of it though. It'd be so easy for us to look at this as Jesus going, so come on, do it. But remember, this same man, the same God who's giving this teaching saying, hey, you can trust me. You can build your life on me. I won't let you down. When storms come, you'll make it through if you build your house on me. Is the same guy who every day as we work through this book of Luke is headed towards the cross to die for our sins. Remember that. He's not the guy looking down his nose like the Pharisees were saying, you just need to be better. You're bad, you need to be good. It's not who he is. He's calling them to a new kingdom, but he's doing the work to make sure that we can actually get there. Amen? So church, know the truth. Like know it, study it, be discerning. Don't be a fundamentalist jerk, but be discerning. Watch for peddlers of some false gospel, like study the gospel because the only gospel that will save anybody is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And anything else we give anybody is wasting their time. And then be gracious, love people. Don't withdraw and look down your nose and point fingers, but instead carry the good news of the gospel that Jesus loves them to people. Be merciful and loving, be like Jesus too. Amen, church? And may God never let us become Pharisees. Oh, God, will you protect us from this, Lord? Even as I teach this, Lord, please, I need your mercy more than anyone else in this room. Lord, may we have right doctrine and right teaching, but may we have godly hearts. I pray, Lord, that for everyone in this room, Lord, we would consider ourselves and the doctrine. For in doing so, as your word says, we save ourselves and others. So will you keep us on the right path? Help us to discern your truth and then keep our hearts pliable and soft. Lord, help us to be close to you, following you. Help us to look more like you, Lord. And I just pray your blessing on this church, Lord. I, I pray there's so many people that have had so many bad experiences with church because they were built on the very pharisaical attitude that you call out here. So help us to show a different way. Help us to show a different type and help us to live for the true gospel and for you, Jesus. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I love you guys. Have a great, great week. We'll see you Wednesday night. God bless.